0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We will be uh, looking in Hebrews chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 4. And even though we're kind of moving past the first chapter, it still really is under this theme, uh, And so very much connected this idea of of God's ultimate revelation in his son, Jesus. Um, So let's begin by reading. Thank you. Uh, Reading from Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... Um, there's some unique things about the book of Hebrews that, um, that oftentimes just reading it we, will, we, we, we may miss. Uh, but but uh, one of the things that's unique about it is that it really is, um, um, you know, the first ever sermon podcast. <laughs> well, not really, because obviously it wasn't recorded. But, um, but unlike, say, the, the Gospels or the letters of Paul, uh, the book of Hebrews really was written as a, as a published sermon and uh, for those who study it, and scholars tell us that it, it really has all the marks of what would have been a, a representative and complete sermon uh, in that time period. And of course, in Acts, there's a lot of sermons also, but they're condensed and summarized. Uh, when Peter preached at, at uh, Pentecost, uh, we get the, the summary of his sermon, not the whole thing, but Hebrews is really the whole deal. It's a, it's a great picture illustration of a, of a full sermon. And As a sermon, it has a biblical text, and uh, scholars are pretty well agreed that the the text he's preaching from is Psalms 110 because it comes up over and over again. We saw that actually last week, uh, along with some other key uh, scriptures and passages. And like any sermon, uh, good sermons will have two things really good, funny stories. Well, (laughs) not necessarily. Uh, It has these two things it has what we call exposition where the preacher is taking a passage of Scripture and explaining it, exposing it, exposing or helping us understand uh, the the full meaning of that passage. And that's what, what we try to do here each Sunday. I try to explain Scripture. Uh, then, of course, the second thing that a good sermon have will be exhortation. In other words, it's, it's challenging us to take the truth that we've learned in Scripture and find some way to apply it or put it into practice into our life. So there's exhortation and uh, and uh, an exposition and uh, the book of Hebrews has these uh, in very balanced throughout the, the book and so the first chapter uh, is, is, is very much expository right he's looking at Psalms uh, 110 101 along with seven other scriptures uh, first four verses he gives this very profound introduction that really lays out a lot of the themes that will be covered in the book and um, and if we were to summarize the first chapter, which I know it took us like five weeks or something to go through, if we could summarize it, I could have done it all in just this one sentence: um, that while God spoke in former times through the prophets and angels, in these end times He has spoken to us by His Son. Jesus is the very climax and culmination of all God's revelation, and everything Jesus said, and everything Jesus did, and in everything He is. This revelation is vastly superior to all former revelation, because Jesus, the Word incarnate, is superior in every way to any man, and even the angels. Because so that's kind of summarizes the whole first chapter. And what we see in verse in chapter two, verses one through four, is now he's going to give us some exhortation. <clears throat> he's going to say, "Okay, that's the principle. That's what I wanted. To, you know, that's what I got out of Psalms 110 and these other scriptures. Now I want to help us apply it to our life." He wants to exhort us to do something with this truth that Jesus is God's ultimate revelation. Um, and and his, he, he, it's not hard, right? You don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure out what his exhortation is. Uh, if you look back at the, the scripture, his exhortation is, pay attention, right? Pay attention. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, he says. And what, he's, what, we, what have we heard? Well, he just got done spending a whole chapter talking about it. What we've heard is what God spoke to us through Jesus, through the ultimate revelation of Jesus, his life, his work, his teaching, his suffering, and ultimately his resurrection. And especially what he suffered on the cross and how he overcame the grave and came back to life. Right? This is what we've heard in the person of Jesus. And he says, we have got to... Pay much closer attention to that, um, but I want to ask a question. And I think is a fair question, um, and the question is this: Well, why do we need to pay m- more attention, right? Uh, the message of the gospel that Jesus came, uh, lived his life, and died for us is, is is the gospel message. Why do we need to pay attention to that if um, <coughs> if Jesus has already worked out our salvation and we've trusted in him and now we are, we are saved. Right? We were saved. It's done. What does it matter now, really? right? Why not just go on about our own business and our own life? <clears throat> um, you know, We believe that once you put your faith in Jesus and in his blood, we are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We go from spiritual death to rebirth. We are saved. So what difference does it make? Why not just go about our business and live our life and why do we need to pay so much attention to the gospel? Um, As I've taught this in many places and at many times, I've had this question. I had had somebody tell me once after teaching on the importance of the gospel for a whole week, come up and say, well, why do you keep going over and over the gospel? I'm already saved. And there's this idea that um, once you're saved, the gospel is mostly irrelevant. And so it's a fair question. Why do we have to pay attention? Well, uh, the author has a lot to say about why. And, uh, and actually, in, in, uh, this is the first of five what are called warning passages, where he warns us to be very careful about what we do with the gospel. Uh, so he's going to tell us why we need to pay much closer attention. So let's look at, we're going to look at uh, the challenge, the the exhortation to pay attention, and then he gives us three good reasons why this is vitally important. So let's see what he says. First of all, uh, the exhortation, we we must indeed pay closer attention um, to what God, what we have heard, or to flip it around, what God spoke, right? Uh, We have heard the message that was proclaimed through Jesus and through the apostles and through the word, brought to us. Um, and, and because of that, Hebrews 2, 1-4 is very tightly connected with chapter 1, and specifically with verses 1-4. through 4. And I won't go through all the parallels, but there, there's a lot of links between 2, 1-4 and 1, 1-4. Um, and, and the emphasis is that we need to pay attention to what we've heard. That is what God has spoken in his Son. Uh, and as we, if you were here last Sunday, we talked about Jesus being the climax and culmination of all of God's revelation. So it's not that Jesus makes what was revealed in the Old Testament through the prophets and through the angels uh, irrelevant. We don't cut the Old Testament out of our Bible, um, although many of us functionally do because we don't ever read it uh, or we read it and don't understand it because um, it's, it's confusing. I'll, I'll grant that. Um, But but his point is that Jesus isn't replacing Old Testament revelation. He fulfills it. He's the culmination of it. And that the only way to really understand the Old Testament is through understanding who Jesus is and how he's completed and fulfilled the Old Testament. So you could say that the Bible has its great punchline in the Gospel. That Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he fulfilled all the demands and requirements of the law. So for Jesus, the Old Testament was hugely significant because he carried it out perfectly. All its laws and all its commandments, he kept completely and perfectly. But not only that, when he died on the cross, his death uh, was the, the ultimate picture of what all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. So every kind of Old Testament sacrifice in some way is a picture of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Um. So, so so, the gospel sums up, and when we use the word gospel, we are summing up all that Jesus taught, all that he did as the Son of God to obtain salvation for lost people and fulfillment of everything that God's revelation, all the Old Testament, pointed to. And he says, you need to pay attention to this. And he's writing, it's important to understand here, that he's writing to Christians. Right? He's writing to most likely uh, Jewish converts who had, Uh, He turned to Christianity from Judaism. And he's telling these people, you need to pay much closer attention to this gospel message, the content and words of what Jesus did and lived and taught. Um, And the reason is that um, it's possible, he he makes it clear that it's possible to to not pay attention. Um, we, We can all have what I would call spiritual or gospel ADD. You know, attention deficit disorder. Do any of you have ADD? You don't have to raise your hand. Uh, Maybe you have, do any of you have friends or family who are ADD? I do. And uh, ADD people are people who have a hard time focusing on what they're supposed to be focused on, right? So if you look around the room, the guy that's right now playing on his phone or looking all around or, you know, that's the guy who's got ADD, right? Or they're up and down five times, they're ADD. They have a hard time sitting still, focusing, keeping their attention. I know this is hard for some of you, right? Uh, and it's how some of us are wired. Uh, an a-, a person with ADD is easily distracted and almost anything can draw their attention away uh, from the thing that they're supposed to be working on. Uh, and likewise, they can become incredibly focused and drawn into the wrong thing, right? So gospel ADD is this problem where we functionally start getting distracted from the gospel, where our attention is drawn away to other things. And Jesus and the work of the cross, the, uh, the, the what was spoken, uh, disappears from our thinking, right? We get distracted. We're ADD. Uh, and I really do believe that all of us have this problem when it comes to the gospel. It takes a lot of focus and intentionality to keep our mind trained on the gospel, now, it's not hard to stay focused on on the Bible or on spiritual things. Uh, but there's a difference between being focused on things that are in the Bible or that are spiritual or that are very Christian-looking versus focusing on the work and pur- purpose of Jesus. Um, as, as many of us who are here as missionaries, we, we go back to our home countries, and one of the things you get to do is you get to visit lots of churches, Right? And you get to hear lots of different sermons and experience lots of different ways people do worship. And I praise God for the variety of his church. But uh, when I go back, sometimes it's very discouraging, right? And I visit a lot of churches that are gospel ADD. And I remember specifically one church that I went to was a church plant, a fairly new church. And I remember visiting this church, and it wasn't a supporting church. We were visiting some friends who said, Hey, we just started this church plant. You want to go? It's like, yeah, I'd love love to see how churches are being planted. So we went, and uh, it was a very nice church. Very nice people. They were renting a school, and these people showed up, and they looked very Christian. They dressed just like we do, right? Some of them maybe even had name tags. I don't know. Um, They sang Christian songs and they held very creative, like, I don't know, Disney-themed Sunday school programs or something. Um, They worked hard at making people feel that they belonged, and afterwards they had this wonderful fellowship time. But in this entire worship service, this entire service, right, not a single worship song named the name of Jesus or spoke of his blood or the cross. Uh, The message, although full of the Bible, Uh, was completely void of any mention of Jesus or the gospel. In fact, I think in the whole entire service, the word Jesus was only mentioned once in the whole service. And I think that was like, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, In short, uh, they were not paying attention to the message. I think this is the exact kind of people that the author of Hebrews is talking about. He's saying, you, are not, you, you must pay much closer attention to what God spoke to us through his son. We don't mention his name or speak of the cross or the work that Jesus did in the whole entire worship service. You're missing the point. But it's not hard to end up here. It's actually quite easy. Um, it starts this way. We start by seeking honest help for answers to life's problems. Any of us have problems in life? right? We all do, right? We all struggle with things. And we want answers, we want solutions, we want to fix these problems in our life, whether it's how to get out of debt or how to deal with our hyperactive uh, children or how to have more intimacy with our spouse, how to be more organized or disciplined or more successful. Uh, And we know that, and and we see the Bible as an instruction manual for life that should help us, kind of a spiritual self-help book, right? And certainly there's a lot of wisdom in the Bible, there's a lot of Help to direct our life, um, but but the reality is that there's a lot better books than the Bible if you want just self help. Right? The Bible is hard to read, and actually there's a lot of authors who give authors who give self help practical help much more, much easier to read if nothing else. Right? Certainly in a way that's more entertaining. And you, there's parenting podcasts, and there's workshops on how to rekindle your marriage, and there's self help books that are that are honestly much easier to read. Right? And so we gravitate to those things, thinking they're going to solve the problems for our life. Um, and because we're Christians, and in many, many of these self-help books are Christian, and they base their help on the Bible, we're drawn to them. And we think, this book on fixing my marriage is going is to change everything. Um, and, and pastors get caught in this as well. Pastors feel the pressure to solve people's problems, People come to them for advice. They say, Pastor, you know, I've got this problem. My marriage is falling apart. Fix it. And you know, pastors, they like to fix things. We, we like to fix things. And I, we want to help. And so we we start turning sermons into practical self-help advice. And And a lot of times preachers feel that if they don't do that, they will lose their people to the church down the road having a four-week series on putting the romance back in your marriage or becoming better parents or how to... You know, be successful in your business. And in all of this, they may be teaching the Bible, more or less, but they are teaching the Bible minus Jesus. Is it possible to do that? Yes. Is it possible for us to read the Bible minus Jesus? Yes. It is possible for us to be gospel ADD, right? And as we saw last week, to do that is to miss the whole point of what the Bible is. It's to miss the point that Jesus is the culmination of all God's revelation, and that if you're reading the Bible and you've left Jesus out, you're missing the main point. You're missing the main subject of Scripture, Uh, and in in the end, it might appear biblical, but it's it's not. In fact, that's probably exactly the situation that uh, the original readers of this sermon or hearers were doing. Right? They were Jews who were not ignoring Scripture. There are Jewish people who probably took the Old Testament very seriously. But the risk was that they were leaving Jesus out. They weren't doing the very exact things that we looked at last last week, where the author of Hebrews is highlighting how the Old Testament points to and is all about Jesus. So the author urges, he says, this is something we must do. We must pay closer attention. Um, and specifically, what must we do? Um, uh, we, must, we must pay closer attention to the gospel. Uh, it is vital and essential for our life, both for now and for eternity. So what does this mean? What does it look like to pay much closer attention to Jesus and his life and ministry and death? Well, first, I believe, as I shared last week, it means understanding and reading the whole Bible in terms of its final and complete revelation in Jesus, right? Uh, We are not paying attention to the revelation of Jesus if we see the Old Testament as only a a set of laws and rules that pertain to to the Jews that have nothing to do with us, right? Or if we think, as some do, that it's old, Old Testament rules and regulations that do pertain to us like it pertained to the Jews in the Old Testament, Right? Either case, we're leaving Jesus out or we're not understanding how Jesus fulfilled and completed the Old Testament. Right? So first thing we must do is we must start reading our Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and seeing in it Jesus as the, the, the culmination, the climax, the fulfillment of all that Scripture is about. second thing we must do is we must radically change how we see the problems in our life and the solutions to those problems. And we know what the problems are, uh, and we know that we need to fix them. We know that we need to solve them, uh, but we've got to understand that the that, that the solution is beyond just self-help, right? The Bible is not just giving wisdom and advice, right? If that was if that was all that was necessary, Jesus didn't have to come here and die, right? If he could have just you know sent. Uh, a dear Abby letter out once in a while, like a dear Jesus, this is what you can do to solve your life's problems. His death would not have been required, right? Advice and counseling and clever techniques to become a better parent or lover or to conquer our addictions or to live successful, prosperous lives is not enough. Uh, And the reason is that we, the, the root cause of our problem is not lack of wisdom, It's not because you don't know what you're supposed to do. It's because you do not have the power to do it. Uh, Sin is something we cannot avoid on our own. We are captive to its power. It it has a bondage on us. The chains of sin tie us and constrain us and force us to do things we don't want to do. Don't raise your hands again, but the question, how many of you have ever done something that you know is absolutely wrong and you did not want to do and you were committed not to doing and you did it anyway. Like Peter, before the cross, he swore to Jesus, I will never abandon you or desert you. I'll I'll die with you. And yet a very few hours later, what was Peter doing? I don't know Jesus, I've never heard of him. I've never seen the guy. You see, sin has, has power over us. And you cannot break that power through counseling or advice or self-help books. Right? Now, those are good things. Um, but the only power that can ultimately set us free is what? The power of the cross. Right? Jesus, is, in, in his death and resurrection, is what has broken the chains of sin that hold us captive and bondage. Uh, this is true throughout Scripture. But one, one quick reference, uh, Romans 7, verses 23 through 25. In Romans 7, Paul talks at length about this, this struggle, that he says, I want to do the right thing, but the very thing I want to do is not what I do, and the very thing I don't want to do is the thing I do. And he sums it up this way. He says, I see in my members, that is in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He says, I'm captive. I'm trapped. I am a prisoner. O wretched man that I am, who will ever deliver me from this body of death? Well, he gives the answer, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only way we will ever be set free from the power of sin in our life is through the gospel, through the work and power of Jesus on the cross. So that's why we must pay much closer attention. Um, the, the author continues on, and he, he gives us three reasons why. Is it, that's not enough. Okay, He gives us three good reasons why this is so vitally important. So first one, quickly. Uh, first, there, there, is, there is the danger of drifting off course. Uh, he, he, he says... It is possible to drift away from the message. Um, uh, we must pay much closer to, uh, attention to what we've heard, verse 1, lest we drift away from it. Uh, the image here is of a sailing ship. So I have a, a fun sailing ship there as a picture. It's a picture of a sailing ship drifting off course, right? Uh, the ship is headed for a specific destination. The captain and crew are sailing for you know, Hawaii or wherever, right? Uh, but to, to get there, they have to diligently navigate, right? And so what that means is they have maps and charts, and they go out and they look at the stars, and, and they align, and they have instruments and compasses that constantly help them keep their course fixed. And if they're not diligent about that, they will drift off course. And it's dangerous to drift off course. Uh, when you drift off course, there's the, 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 the threat of, Uh, running into an island, submerged rocks, um, shipwrecking, or just getting eternally lost in the ocean. Um, So what exactly can we drift away from? Uh, What what is the danger that's posed to us? Um, If we do not pay careful attention to the gospel, what is it that we will drift from? Well, in verse 3, he helps us understand that. He says, that in verse 3 he says how shall we escape if we neglect neglect such a great salvation uh, he uses the term salvation and and what we've heard the message interchangeably uh, so that should raise some some startling questions for us right is he saying here that if we're not careful if we don't pay careful attention to the gospel that that we could lose our salvation um and throughout and this will be a repeated thing throughout the book of Hebrews right throughout the book he brings up this issue of the threat of losing salvation of slipping of drifting away from salvation what does he mean by that does he mean that we we could lose that, that the author of Hebrews doesn't believe in what we call the eternal security of the believer in other words you know you put your faith in Jesus and you get saved and once you're saved you're always saved it doesn't matter what you do, how much you mess up your life. You're going you're to go to heaven. We call that eternal security. It's tempting to take a vote and see who all of you believe that. Um, I do, for one. Okay, I do believe that. And I think, actually, uh, if the author of Hebrews is saying that you could lose your salvation, he would be speaking contrary to what all the rest of the New Testament writers clearly teach. Right? Um So what is he saying, then? If he's saying... Ignoring this puts us at jeopardy of our salvation. What does he mean by it? Um, well, I think we could, we could illustrate it this way. And, and the problem is that we tend to think of salvation simply as the event of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Right? And either you are or you aren't. right? Either you are in the kingdom of darkness and you're not saved, or you are in the kingdom of light and you are saved. And that's how we view this whole term of salvation but but think of it this way: Imagine that you are in a terrible car accident I mean a terrible car accident, and you have multiple broken bones, perhaps you have a spinal injury, and you're at risk of, of paralysis and not being able to walk. You have head injuries and, and you are just a mess right and you're in the hospital lying there with tubes and iVs and, and ICU and and in, in your haze of of, uh, misery, you open your eye and in comes your very best friend. And they say, Wow, I thought you had died. But I see you're living. I'm glad you're okay. Glad I, I just feel so much better. I'm glad you're alright. Right? What would you think about that person? You'd be thinking, when I get better, first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna strangle you. Because <laughs> I am not okay, right? I'm a mess. Well, uh, when we look at salvation in terms of simply being in the kingdom or not in the kingdom, we're missing a huge piece of the puzzle here. It's like saying, you're alive. You must be okay. right? Is that all there is to it? Or is there more to our salvation than just life? Like healing and restoration and recovering from all of our brokenness. right? Well, I think... The, the Bible, not just he, in Hebrews, but all of the Bible has a view of salvation much broader than simply being in or out, as if salvation is nothing more than your ticket into heaven. Now, it is that, right? But it's not only that. In Scripture, salvation is seen as, as both something, uh, three things, as past, a past event, a present reality, and something that will come to us in the future, uh, now, when we look and think about salvation as a past event, it is certainly an all-or-nothing deal. Either you have put in the past at some point your faith in Jesus, and you have been saved, right? You have been made blameless in God's sight. The, the blood of Jesus is applied to your life, and you are a new creature in Christ, right? That's a one-time event. It's, it's either, it is a, an all-or-nothing thing. You're not, like, mostly saved or kind of saved. You either are made right, forgiven, justified... Saved or not. Uh, likewise, uh, our future salvation also seems to be largely a, an all-or-nothing thing, right? When you die, either you're going to go to heaven or you're not, right? There's either, the, the work of Jesus is, is enough and, and, and it gives you access into eternity and his kingdom in heaven forever. Or you are excluded from that. You fall under judgment and you are separated forever for God's love and care and goodness, uh, but, but we also know that, uh, that in eternity, uh, not everybody is going to be created, uh, treated equally, right? Scripture is clear that as believers, we also will be judged. We will stand before God and we will give an account for our life and it will not be equal, right? There will be rewards given and there will be uh, uh, something to show for your life if you lived and and, and fulfilled God's salvation or not. right? Which brings us to the present. In the present, uh, our salvation is much more something that is in flux, that is being, as Paul says, worked out. Philippians 2.12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's something about our salvation that is not just all or nothing. That here in the present time we are to be working something out. It is a process of being saved from what? Well, certainly, if we are if we have eternal life, we have eternal life. We can't lose that. But there's more to it than that. There's all the brokenness and the you know we're lying in in intensive care and we need healing and restoration and fixing. That also is saving. It's a saving work of Jesus on the cross. Uh, being saved from, from the power of sin over our life. Being saved from ourselves and our tendency to self-destruct and do foolish things. Uh, being saved from our sinful impulses and desires. From destructive habits. From enslaving thought patterns and a godless lifestyle. It, those are also part of God's saving work in our life. Um, Jesus himself taught that there was more to salvation than simply getting into the kingdom. In the parable of the sower and the seeds, seas, he says in Matthew 13, yet uh, he, that is the person who is uh, uh, in the rocky soil, he says, yet this person has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns. This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitful, deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfaith- unfruitful. Uh, and of course, we can debate back and forth uh, a lot about does that mean they lose their salvation or not? The problem is if we see salvation only in terms of in or out, right? it's easy to see that, well, they must not be saved. But if we see it as salvation is more than odd, it's, it's, it's seeing our life transformed and becoming fruitful and productive for God's kingdom, then it's possible to receive the word implanted in our heart but bear no fruit. But even more clearly, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians nine twenty seven. 27. And here, Paul is speaking of himself, and I don't think he's worried about losing his salvation. But Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, when Paul says disqualified, what, what is the race he's being worried about being disqualified from? Is Paul worried about losing his salvation? I don't think so, right? He, he's too clear in all the rest of scripture that you can't lose your salvation but clearly he felt that he could be disqualified from the race. Here the race is not about getting into heaven, but about being a fruitful and effective minister of the gospel, about receiving all the blessings and benefits of salvation being worked out in his life. He said, yeah, I can maybe be saved, but I could blow it all by not paying careful attention to the gospel. I could disqualify myself even though I'm an apostle sent out to preach the gospel uh, to others. Okay, so that's the first warning is is, uh, you can drift away. It's possible for Christians to drift and we see it all the time. People who drift away, their eternal security is there, but their life is a wreck because they haven't anchored it securely in the truth of the gospel. Second thing, He says that there are inescapable consequences of neglecting this salvation. Verse 2 For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Uh, The reference here is to the giving of the law uh, to Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, we don't know uh, where the angels came from, because if you read uh, Exodus, if we just went through it, there aren't angels present there that we, that we know of, uh, but apparently there were. Um, God, God directly gave the, the law to Moses. Um, but maybe what is implied here is, is all the stuff that went on around, right? He says that the message was proved reliable by angels. And if you remember when Moses was on the mountain, there, were, there was cool stuff going on. There was fire the mountain shook, there was a blazing pillar of fierce smoke, right? Maybe the angels were back. Maybe they were in charge of special effects, right? And they had some, like, super, like, pyro angels who were going, hey, this is fun. We're going to burn the mountain down. Um, maybe they were Thai, right? And they'd been to Loic Croton I don't know. Uh, but it's, the, the point is that the message was proved reliable by, by angels, by whatever it was that they did in, in the revelation of this word. Um, and it says that Israel transgressed the law, right? That it says uh, they they were, were not they 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 paid the price. There was a wage or a penalty to be paid, a reward. Literally, it's a reward, but the reward was punishment because they transgressed the law and they disobeyed. The word disobeyed here has the idea of of ignoring, not paying attention, not taking it seriously, right? And and the point is they they couldn't say. Well, we didn't take it seriously because we just thought Moses made it all up. And he says, no, the angels confirmed it. The angels, you know, they did the whole firework thing. It was clear that this message was more than just Moses making it up. So they were accountable. Um, they had they had no excuse for not taking it seriously, for not paying attention. And the result is that there were consequences. So what were the consequences for Israel for not keeping the law at Sinai and in the wilderness, did they lose their salvation? Uh, they were repeatedly disobedient, but what's what's incredible is that God does not do what He says He would at first and wipe them out. That would have been losing their salvation, but instead, God walks with them, and He in fact lives in the midst of them. He erects the tabernacle where they can come worship him. They continue as the people of covenant, in covenant relationship with God. They did not lose their salvation. But there were consequences. There were plagues. There were snakes that bit them. There was fire that burned and consumed them. There were times when the whole ground opened up and swallowed them. Okay? Those are consequences of sin. Uh, even Moses did not escape the consequences. And in his disobedience, when he struck the rock, he was prohibited from going into the promised land. Did Moses lose his salvation? No. But did he miss out on the outworking of that salvation and all of its benefits that God intended for him? Yes. He did not get to enter the land of promise. Right? The point is not that by neglecting neglecting the gospel, we will lose our salvation. But we must realize that there are very serious consequences to our life by ignoring all that Jesus did, all that his salvation entails for us on the cross neglecting that salvation. In other words, all that Jesus accomplished, not just getting into heaven, but all that he accomplished to break the power of sin over our life, to give us the fullness of his blessing, can be missed both presently and even into eternity if we do not take this seriously. Uh, How does this work in real life? Uh, we do have our problems. And I was just reminded recently of what a problem uh, pornography, Internet pornography is, even in this community of full-time Christian workers. Um, Can you be saved and addicted to porn? Well, yes, absolutely, of course. And I am am so thankful that that, uh, pornography was not available on the Internet when I was 16, 17 years old, or I definitely would have been caught and snagged in this trap. The only reason I, I wasn't is because back in my day, you couldn't just go in your private, privacy of your own room and click on some buttons. You had to, like, go into a, a store and, and where people could see you, right? And I was terrified at the thought that if I ever bought something in a store, sure, sure enough, my pastor would walk in right there in 7-Eleven, and I'd be standing there going, ah, right? So it was all too terrifying for me, right? So it was easy to avoid it, not because uh, it wasn't a temptation, uh, because, it wasn't, uh, because my life was not consumed with the lust that would drive that. Because I was afraid of getting caught. Right? But, the, but the lust that drove all that and the, the, the lust that drives sexual addictions consumed me as a person. So how do you fix that problem? Right? Do you just get an accountability partner? Will that solve it? Will you put uh, anti-porn software on your computer? Does that fix it? Uh, do you go to counseling or read self-help books to find some trick or technique to avoid and overcome this addiction? Well, those are all great things, and you should do them, right? You should have an accountability partner. You should put every kind of block and anti-this and that on your computer. But the reality is, if you're determined enough, you can just take the block off, right? Uh, you can lie to your accountability partner, uh, You may need counseling, and that can be a very helpful thing, but the reality is, as I said before, the only thing that will break the power of that addiction over your life is what? The cross. The work of Jesus. The only thing. The only thing. You will not overcome it by your own determination or discipline or self-control. You need the power of Jesus at work in your life to overcome and break the bondage that, that that ties you to that, it is our only hope. And not just lust, but pride, greed, fear, selfishness, bitterness, anger, self-pity, self materialism, you name it. Right? The only thing that will break the power of those things over your life is the power of the cross. Right. To pay attention to Jesus. To pour your life into the truth that sin is a horrible thing and the consequences of it are devastating. Right? To reflect on what Jesus took upon himself because of your addiction. Yes, to know that if you repent, he forgives you no matter how many times you fall to that sin. But every time, it should be a painful, a painful time of confession and realizing that you are not really appropriating all that the cross has for you. Yeah, you're getting its forgiveness, but you're not getting its life-changing power, right? And to throw yourself at the foot of the cross and to plead for Jesus to put to death the deeds of the flesh in you by putting you on the cross with him, which he's done. And there's more to that, but um, the, the point is, your only hope is to pay attention to the gospel. Lastly, this third thing, he, 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 he finishes by saying this, you know, who would ignore something that has such overwhelming evidence? Verse three, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. So he gives here three ways that this message came to us and was confirmed. First, It was declared to us first by the Lord himself, Jesus. Second, it was attested to us by those who heard it. And thirdly, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. In other words, God gave us this message in a way that is undeniably accurate and clear and reliable. Three ways. First, he sent Jesus as the incarnate word to deliver the message. God spoke to us in his son. Right? Jesus himself delivered this message. That makes it pretty reliable. Secondly, everything that Jesus taught and said it did has been confirmed through countless eyewitnesses who heard it all and reported it to us. Right? How do we know that Jesus did all this stuff? Well, because thousands of people saw him. And at the time of the writing of Hebrews, a lot of those eyewitnesses still lived. And many of them were, were disciples. Many were his enemies. And what's interesting is his enemies never dispute the claims of the Bible. Right? There's no writings anywhere in history of, of the Jewish rabbis, the scribes, the scholars who crucified him, denying or d- disputing anything that Jesus taught. Right? They all affirm and confirm everything that Jesus did and taught, even the resurrection. Um, thirdly... Um, God himself confirms it with overwhelming signs and wonders and miracles, right? Both that Jesus did, but also those first hearers, the message was confirmed because they did lots of miracles. God confirmed that their message was accurate and reliable because of the supernatural works as well as the the gifts of the spirit, uh, the mighty deeds that they did. Right. Now, now you may argue well that all of this doesn't really prove anything, and it's true that for a skeptic uh, this doesn't prove anything. But the reality is if somebody's determined not to believe something, uh, there's no way to prove otherwise. right For example, there are people who believe that Neil Armstrong never walked on the moon. right Now, uh, there's video evidence, right there's photographs, there's like... 10-story tall rocket engines, right? Uh, There's space dust, right? There's rocks from the moon, okay? You can't get more evidence than that. And yet there are people who say it's all made up, right? For a person who has it in their mind, they're going to be a skeptic and a cynic. There is no amount of evidence that will convince them. But the reality is this, that Jesus' life, there's, there's no event in history, none, that is more documented or more attested to or more verified than Jesus' words and life and teaching and, and, um, in, in his life, right? Uh, nothing, nothing comes close to the amount of evidence documenting the accuracy of what he did. So, so the writer says, who would not pay serious attention to something that God has gone to so much trouble to verify? If it was such a big deal to God, shouldn't it be a big deal to you and I? The reality is that we are that person lying in ICU who's been shattered. Our life has been shattered by sin. And praise God that Jesus didn't just walk into the ICU room and say, Well, I've given you life. I'm glad you're breathing. I'm glad you're okay. (laughs) Now That was not enough for him. Right? He wants to see your life healed and restored and transformed so you become a vessel of an instrument of righteousness to do His will and to give glory to Him in everything you do and everything you are. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.